Part 5. The Triad I waited a month for a response from Shannon, but one never came. I didn't need to give him examples of what he had said to me because I had written an entire book about it. I don't remember telling him that nobody liked him because of his personality, but I can see myself telling him at some point that he was too critical of people or that he was mean to someone. I regret giving him the example of the time he yelled at his wife in front of all of us, something that sat uncomfortably with me for a long time. It has always been more upsetting to me when I see him do it to others than when he's just doing it to me. A part of me feels like I need to stick up for her, even if it's not my responsibility. If I was attempting to gain his support, I should have kept the conversation just about us. I didn't tell him that I called Renette to apologize for him after that vacation. When I told her some of the things he had done to me to relate my experience to her, she also apologized for him. When I tell you about him, you also apologize. Everyone he surrounds himself with supports him unconditionally and apologizes on his behalf. I've never once heard him apologize for himself or show any appreciation for the love he has embraced with consistently. I don't know if it is an inability to see or an unwillingness to feel. I recognize that I probably expect far too much from my brother. He didn't volunteer to be my brother or the person I would idolize. He didn't ask for the power to influence my life so absolutely. I may view him as a father-like figure, but I am not his responsibility. You can't change people, you can only change your expectations of them. I again found myself returning to the concept of setting expectations. I have always felt that my family's expectations of me were unfair. Those expectations made me feel like I wasn't good enough, which contributed to my developing a personality dysmorphia that I struggle with to this day. Half the battle of working through my addiction has been managing my family's expectations of me, and the other half has been me realizing that I do the same thing to them. Is it possible my brother is hard on me because he feels inadequate compared to the pedestal I put him on? My near worship of him has put him on a path of excellence he could never truly obtain and it has manifested in him a sense of anxiety and insecurity. Pushing me away with his mean teasing keeps me at arm's length in a subconscious attempt to break my unfair expectations of him. Maybe my feeling of inadequacy that I see in his eyes comes from my failure to live up to the excellence he feels I'm capable of achieving. A sibling rivalry that our self-doubts and mutual admiration have made increasingly complicated to the point we are today. I have gotten used to the feeling that I perceive the world differently than most people. I can't differentiate pitch, but it hasn't prevented me from playing or writing music. When I'm recording, I feel satisfied with the final product, thinking everything sounds perfect. My ear isn't good enough to hear when I'm slightly off-key or, depending on whom you ask, way off-key. Watching someone cringe as they listen to the mistakes I recorded is always embarrassing, especially when I can't hear what I did wrong. I pushed through the awkwardness and kept making art, but the more my music was rejected, the less it became something that helped me cope. My art would eventually trigger me, stressed by my own coping mechanisms. My perception of life is a lens painted with mixed emotions and painful experiences. I am proud of the music I make, but I'm also too self-conscious to share it because the world doesn't hear it the same as I do. That warped lens influenced my relationship with my family, friends, and co-workers. No matter how successful I am, I will always have imposter syndrome fed by a fear that even when I'm doing well, I assume everyone else only sees my mistakes. I try to improve and push myself harder every day, but I eventually collapse under self-inflicted stress. 
I'll never fully recover until I learn to be okay with imperfection and realize I don't have to be the best at anything. Our failures are sometimes our greatest gifts if we're dedicated to learning. I feel like I've worked so hard and come such a long way in understanding the circumstances that have made me the way I am, but as I conclude my story, I can't help but feel as though nothing has changed. You don't understand my addiction any better than before. My mom is gone again, and things have only gotten more awkward with my brother. Luckily, the experience hasn't been a complete waste of time. I now have a rough road map to guide me through the next chapters of my life, the ones I'm currently writing with my wife and kids. I've also learned more about myself. I have a better grasp on how my brain works, and I've developed new ways to cope with my triggers. I'm better for having written this book. I've learned that one must be cautious with the expectations we set for our family and the unspoken expectations we subconsciously have of them. Regardless of whether we use caution, those expectations can be damaging if we don't communicate effectively and consistently. Still, with fair expectations and excellent communication, the weight of life and unexpected misfortune can derail even the closest bonds between families. Ultimately, the family must support and forgive each other unconditionally along the way. Mistakes happen, but we also make the wrong choices intentionally from time to time. It's okay when we don't always understand, communicate effectively, or support each other. As long as we don't fail on all fronts and take the time to correct, relationship strength can fluctuate while remaining intact. I've begun to focus on three pillars of action that I imagine work in unison to hold the family together and form a relationship triad. The three points of the triad are understanding, communication, and support. Like a three-legged stool, the triad can only support the weight of any relationship when all three pillars are actively working together. The stool becomes wobbly when the pillars are uneven, but the relationship can still survive. If any one or more of the legs are missing entirely, the triad cannot sustain the connection, and the structure falls apart. The triad philosophy can be applied to any relationship singularly between two people or viewed as a guiding mantra within groups of people, like teams and families. A fully activated triad creates the highest level of intimacy attainable in a relationship. This activation level is often reserved for romantic partners, families, best friends, and in situations where teams are required to be highly cohesive. Lower activation levels are achieved by activating at least one pillar of the triad. These relationships are easier to maintain but prevent the participants from achieving higher levels of intimate connection. Most of our relationships exist within this activation realm, and the entropy of relationships naturally deactivates any linkages operating at a higher plane than this. Maintaining a fully activated triad requires constant upkeep and diligent participation from all parties. A growing and developing child requires a fully activated triad to feel safe and to reach their full potential. The advantage of using the triad philosophy within family relationships is that a family can act as a single unit, considering that individual pillars of the triad are easier to sustain than all three. Each family member can serve as the key contributor to a particular point within the triad. A family unit can provide that child with everything they need to reach self-actualization by working together. This was true of our family early in my childhood, and my needs were satisfied. Our family's triad was maintained by an intricate network of relationships. I was supported by you, felt understood by my cousins, and I could communicate with my mother. When you and I moved after the divorce, I lost that network, and the triad became your sole responsibility to maintain. Like all things in the universe, our family moved from order to disorder. 
I eventually compensated for the imbalance with drugs and alcohol, like a sugar packet stuffed under the leg of a wobbly stool. The first pillar of the triad is understanding, which includes learning about each other and showing interest in one another, setting realistic expectations of each other without first understanding our personalities, capabilities, and motivations is impossible. To understand each other, we must use the second pillar of the triad, communication. Communication involves checking in with each other, learning by listening, and having difficult conversations when they are necessary. These two pillars are connected to one another and create synergy as they are both improved by one another. For example, we fail to communicate effectively when we misunderstand each other. Issues arise when we set unfair expectations or say things we don't mean when we're angry. As we learn and grow together, one should expect that we will miscommunicate or misunderstand each other from time to time. We can work through the discomfort by using the triad's final pillar, support. Nobody comes out ahead when we get caught up telling who started what, pointing fingers, and name-calling. A functioning family must allow themselves to be vulnerable with each other and forgive. Setting boundaries and holding each other accountable are the uncomfortable but necessary linkages that triangulate support, understanding, and communication. A family functions best when all three are firing together. Since the divorce, our family has attempted to function exclusively on support, devoid of understanding and communication. I feel closest to you because you have always supported me unconditionally and did your best to maintain the rest of the triad. I wrote this book to help bridge the gap I perceive between our understanding and communication. The relationship I have with my brother is consistently getting worse the longer we misunderstand each other, talk without listening, and as we allow a trivial sibling rivalry to keep us from supporting each other. My mother cut all communication with us years ago, we both refused to understand each other's perspective, and the support withered away with time. Without any active triad feature, she ceased to be a part of this family. I believe that it is never too late for a family to be revived by implementing the triad, but these connections cannot be sustained by any one person alone. The sides of the triangle that connect each point are two-way roads that require both parties to participate. The triad cannot be forced, for it is merely a tool that can only be used by someone who wants to build a stronger relationship. When I first put pen to paper as the story materialized, I thought I had to convince you to use that tool. I was under the impression that I needed our triad to be fully activated if I was ever going to be free of my alcohol dependence. I didn't know I possessed the strength to form my own triads to support myself. It wasn't until I had developed that bond with my wife that I realized I could feel whole again. My relationship with you and Shannon could improve because I didn't rely on you both to complete my support system. I could be satisfied with what you each do well as key contributors to the network I had rebuilt. I didn't have to change you, I could just change my expectations. I was relying so heavily on you to help me meet Maslow's hierarchy of needs that I didn't think I could reach self-actualization without you. I could only relax my expectations of you and Shannon once my wife had instilled in me a sense of love and belonging. I couldn't reach esteem and overcome my shadow until I learned to respect myself as a strong father. My goal now is to raise my children in a vast network of powerful connections they can rely on and teach them how to build on that network with the relationships they forge on their own so that they may also reach self-actualization. Part 6. Joy Jar I can see this book coming off as overly dramatic and unfairly critical. 
Yuan Shannon have the type of personalities to think of my complaints written within these pages as too sensitive. I'm not sure I would even disagree with you. I have excelled in the arts because of my sensitivity, and you can never be too sensitive in the art world. The highlights are most notable difference. We don't value the same aspects of personality. My greatest gift felt like a hindrance, and I never entirely belonged with you and Shannon because of it. Unfortunately, in my pursuit of making you proud, I worked my way into a career that went against my personality grain. I excelled in that career field, but my health began to decline as I became overburdened by the stress of living a life better suited to someone else's strengths. Allow me to better illustrate my experience by asking you this. Have you ever cried listening to instrumental music? By just listening to a drummer and a bassist backing a muted trumpet, I can be moved to tears. The notes of a melody, harmonizing in just the right way, will send chills up my spine and my skin will ripple with goosebumps. The sound produces an emotional tsunami of feelings within me and tears will fall from my cheeks. In my world, the ease with which I can be moved by subtle vibrations in the air is what makes me unique. That same gift became debilitating when I joined the management team in my new career. Making you proud had always been my ultimate goal, and that anxiety guided me through college. It influenced my work relationships and encouraged me to take on more responsibilities in my career. Now, making you proud was all I could think about as I walked to the manager's interview. There were four people on the panel, and they would decide whether or not I would manage the diagnostic laboratories. In my gut, I knew I was too green in the career to take on such a responsibility, but my pride wanted to be able to brag about getting that position anyway. I sat at the end of a long table, and my ears buzzed from the nerves. I answered their questions well and felt like I was making a good impression until they asked me why I wanted the position. I took the long road to answering them. I told them about growing up with you as a single father when we moved to Texas. I described how you always worked late and were stressed when you came home. I was frustrated with it as a kid and had difficulty understanding why you worked that way. Then I told them how we moved around a lot and that I had been to several of your going away parties. At every one of those parties, I had a line of people who wanted to shake my hand and tell me how much you meant to them. They thanked me for sharing my time with you so that you could help them. I was always impressed to hear how many lives you had touched, and it gave me enormous respect for what you did and why you were home late so often. I was in the process of telling the panel that I hoped someone would say the same things to my children someday when I got too choked up to continue talking in what was the most important interview of my life. I was lucky that my tears came off as endearing, and they hired me, but my boss made sure to keep a box of tissues in my office and reminded me about it often. One of my first responsibilities as department supervisor was to fire an old lady who was extraordinarily bad at her job. I was convinced I could help her, but I wasted six months banging my head against a brick wall and had to let her go. That emotional tsunami I get from music was nothing compared to what I felt when I saw her face as I sat her down with human resources. She packed her things while I puked in the bathroom. I ran back and forth from that bathroom, stress puking, for three years as I attempted to fit my too sensitive personality into the rigid structure of management that I thought I was required to inhabit to make you proud. One of the many advantages of writing this book has been realizing that there was never a connection between my stress level and your acceptance. Making you proud wasn't a problem I could solve by working myself to death. I had pressured myself into a situation where I was becoming old and tired, despite my reluctance to do so. I found there was more attention paid to what I did poorly than what I did well. 
with greatness as the expectation, there was no celebration after reaching the summit. When working that hard didn't get the payoff of making either of you any more or less proud, I reevaluated my intentions. I wanted my children to be proud of me, and my shadow was quick to insist that I had to be the boss. If I were simply a bench scientist, my kids would be embarrassed to introduce me at career day. The familiar feeling of creeping darkness tickled the hairs on the back of my neck. I sat quietly in my office with the door closed. The walls were adorned with family photos and drawings the kids had scribbled for me. This office will be the hardest part to let go of if I quit my job, I thought to myself. It had become the only safe space I could escape to when work was too stressful. I grabbed a decorated mason jar from its spot on the bookshelf. For Father's Day, Daphne had created what she called a joy jar and filled it with lovely notes from the kids. I started pulling them out, one by one. The first one I grabbed was a long strip of paper from Jade. On one side, it had scribbles that looked vaguely like an alligator eating the letter H. I flipped it over and saw he had drawn six skateboards. Jade was my three-year-old mini-me. We looked nearly identical at the same age and shared the same interests. He was already obsessed with skateboards and loved playing the drums. I get choked up whenever he tells people I am his favorite skater. I placed the note to the side and randomly grabbed another from the jar. My favorite place to go with you is the park. Love, Pepper. The note was cut into a similar rectangular shape. Pepper had covered one side with pattern tape. On the other side, Daphne had written down what Pepper said. I instantly wanted to leave work to go play with them. I grabbed another note. We should play Play-Doh together. Pepper. The letters were messy and smooshed together, but I admired how well it was written for a five-year-old. Daphne had clearly helped her spell, but Pepper had definitely written this one. I was already smiling ear to ear. I pulled more notes out. A joke to make you laugh. Why did you fart? Because I'm a tart. Love, Pepper. You're a sweet dad, and I'll love you forever. That's why we're making all these great gifts for you. Love, Pepper. This is a picture of someone that is skating, but he's invisible, so he can't see you. Jade. When you get home, I want to give you a hug and tell you I love you. Love, Pepper. I remember playing on the piano and drums with you, and that is super fun. Love, Jade. I love you, Daddy. Pepper. I placed the notes back into the joy jar and unplugged my laptop from my desk computer. I walked into my boss's office and thanked her for the opportunity she had given me. I told her my joy jar didn't have anything about management in it and that I would rather be someone's favorite skater. I quit my job and returned to being a regular old bench scientist who was just the right amount of sensitive with plenty of energy for his kids when he got home. This book already feels as if it has served its purpose for me. I feel like an enormous weight has been lifted from my shoulders without having to give it to you. In fact, I've decided I don't want to share it with you at all. If you or Shannon misunderstood my intentions, this book would destroy our relationships rather than enhance them. Still, as I hold the manuscript in my hand, I feel I have written something that could serve a similar purpose for someone else like me. I wish I had read this book in my deepest depression or before I wasted another paycheck on alcohol. After speaking with each of you before publishing, I was amazed to find that all three of you responded similarly. The initial reaction was one of genuine interest that quickly dissolved into suspicion as you realized I had not only held you partially responsible for my addiction but that I had also written it all down in detail. 
After the initial defensiveness, each of you attempted to dismiss it. My mom resorted to lying about the experience or stretching the truth. My brother played the you started it card from our childhood, and you just assumed I had dreamt it all in the basement of a metaphorical opium den. The final stage of each discussion, however, was the most eye-opening. As I attempted to activate the communication portion of the triad, it would quickly lose steam and die off again. Each conversation I had ended after the dismissal, and we never approached the subject again. I was disappointed each time, but it helped me understand myself more fully, and it helped me feel more prepared to serve my new growing family better. I hope that if any of you ever find this book, you'll get to the end and understand what I tried to do with it without taking offense. I hope it inspires you to explore the relationships in your life and seek to improve them. I hope it changes your perception of addiction and helps you find patience for growth. I hope you decide, as I have, to treat your family, both new and old, with the guiding mantra that summarizes all that I have learned from writing this book. Create a safe place for communication and never, ever stop trying to understand and support each other. Aphantasia, Chapter 11 That's it, I said as I closed the manuscript. Ruby took the book from my hands. I had been working with her for three months. I had first walked into her office hoping to start regression therapy, but I was struggling with hypnosis. The first few times we tried, I just fell asleep. We had instead started reading through the book together and were now at the end. How do you feel? She asked. I looked away from her and stared at the ceiling. She had asked me this question a thousand times during our past sessions, but I wanted to give it more thought this time. The process of writing the book hadn't fixed everything with my family as I thought it might. While it had vastly improved some of my relationships, it had put additional stress on others. I wasn't sure what I felt yet. It's complicated. I said. How so? She asked, urging me to continue with a wave of her hand. Taking more time, I looked around the room. Ruby's office was always dimly lit with stained glass lamps and various candles. The smell of old fabric and menthol cigarettes hung in the air. I briefly met eyes with her again and then sat forward while resting my elbows on my knees. I'm glad I wrote it. This process has been good for me. But I'm scared to share it with my family. She slowly nodded and asked, What are you afraid of? I'm afraid they're going to be mad about it. They won't understand what I was trying to do, and I'm scared they'll write me off. I sat back in my chair and tried to relax, but my foot bounced to a non-existent beat. Let's talk about that. Ruby placed the manuscript on the table and then folded one leg under herself to sit on her foot. Decorative pillows covered her couch in floral prints that didn't match. What would your brother think about the book? A surge of anxiety coated my stomach in acid. I think he would be pissed about it. Do you think he would disagree with how you described him? Well, yeah, I chuckled. I tried to be mindful of what I shared in this book. Every personal detail I decided to share, I made sure it served the purpose of explaining how I got to where I am. I wasn't trying to be persuasive about my brother being a bad guy. I don't even think he is. It's just that this book is mostly about negative events in my life. It's not a representation of who he is. It's about me. 
his greatest attributes were irrelevant to the particular story I wanted to tell. You don't think he'd recognize that? Ruby asked. Absolutely not. I think he'd get upset within the first critical sentence and then slam the book shut. I don't even think morbid curiosity could get him to read the thing. He would see it as a hit piece and write me off. I crossed my arms and recognized the trigger that Ruby and I had been working on. It must have been evident that I was getting upset. She put both feet back on the floor and then softened her voice. What do you think his book would look like? Whom would your character be if he wrote a story about you? I smiled. I liked Ruby's questions. So much of our journey together had been about understanding perception. While I had attempted to write my story from the different perceptions of each member of my family, it was still my perspective of their experience. When I first started writing my book, I wasn't even the main character in my own story. It took four years of introspection to begin humoring the idea that I wasn't an extra in someone else's life. I spun the ring on my finger while I thought about how best to respond to Ruby's questions. It suddenly occurred to me. I wouldn't like the character he would make about me because he would likely be describing my shadow self, and that's why I get triggered by him so easily. Ruby leaned forward. Explain. I don't know how he actually sees me. I could be wrong about how he feels about me. What I've learned during this process is that my anxiety comes from how I think he perceives me. I get triggered when I read into his actions, no matter how benign they are. He has a way of highlighting my insecurities. I stood up and started pacing. I had improved my ability to tap into the zone where I could untangle my thoughts and self-reflect. I feel like he only sees my worst qualities. I feel like the character he would write about me would be my shadow. Ruby looked contemplative. I thought you were at peace with your shadow. I am. But I guess the question now is whether or not I'm at peace with others seeing my shadow. I stopped pacing and stroked my chin. What do you think? Are you comfortable with him seeing you that way? I looked at Ruby without answering and studied her facial expression. She looked curious, but also had a mischievous glint in her eyes. As I continued pacing, I said, Yes, I think I've always been at peace with my shadow. The relief I gained from writing this book was my coming to peace with how my family sees that shadow. My guilt and shame were more about letting them down than it was about me being disappointed in myself. I thought writing this would help them understand that side of me. I realize now that I don't need them to accept me. I am worthy of their love and admiration. It's their loss if they don't want to know this side of me. Then I ask you again, why are you afraid to share the book with them? The mischievous glint was now an aura of delight. I have written a book likely describing what my brother sees as a shadow. Reading this would be triggering for him. And I don't think he's ready to be that introspective. I sat down again across from Ruby. This process served its purpose for me. It wouldn't have any positive impact on him. I won't improve our relationship by sharing this book with him. I can only improve it by acting on what I've learned from writing it. She made a few notes on her pad and then looked up at me. What about your dad? He's different. I don't think he would be mad. But he wouldn't be interested, either. I think he would be disappointed in me. It would only hurt his feelings, and he wouldn't see the purpose in my writing it. It would do the opposite of what I set out to do. What's the point in putting either of us through that? What if you're wrong? Ruby asked. Getting this story off my chest has been liberating. 
I'm no longer ashamed of my past or stressed about future interactions with my family. I feel like I have the tools to handle my triggers when they come, and I can focus on enjoying my dad for what he does well. I was always so frustrated with his unwavering consistency, but I'd not be where I am today without him. He's retiring this month. Did I tell you about that? I sat back with one leg crossed over the other at the knee. No, you didn't. Ruby said as she interlocked her fingers and relaxed her posture. Yeah, forty years. He got a job as a teenager when my mom got pregnant with Shannon. He has been with the same company longer than I've been alive. You want to know the craziest part? I waited for her reply. What? She asked, humoring me. He hated that job for all forty of those years. I raised my eyebrows and shrugged my shoulders. This dude has the ability to put the entire world on his back and just chip away with his head down. He slowly carved out a life for us from scratch. He has been the only constant in my life. I don't want him to read this story because he will misunderstand. I battled my demons, and I'm in a better place. I thought I wrote this as a letter to him. I agonized about sharing it with him. I only recently realized I had to write this for myself, and I couldn't have done it alone. I had to write it to him because he is my rock. By writing it to him, I could feel safe exploring my trauma. He already did his part by raising me with unconditional support. This book has served its purpose without him having to read it. Now it's my turn to support him. I need to show my appreciation and let my kids fall in love with him as much as I have. Ruby smiled. I like that, Denver. How about your mom? Nope. That ship has sailed. Would she be upset? Ruby opened her notebook again. The only guarantee I've ever had from her is that she'll be upset. I shook my head and looked away. A small ceramic building on the bookshelf caught my eye. Is that a David Winter cottage? Confused, Ruby looked across the room and then answered. Yes? My mom collected those. They always remind me of her. They're so cute. I see them around Christmas every year. They are always displayed in a group, like a nice, tiny little town. At first glance, they seem so charming, but when you get closer, you can see that the snow is fake, and there's a hidden rat in each one. I looked back at Ruby. I can't trust her anymore. I think we're both better off without each other. I see. Ruby wrote a few more things on her pad. I think we should keep working on those feelings. Are you ready to try regression again? We can try, I said as I relaxed into the couch and grabbed my eye mask. Hypnosis felt impossible for me. On one of our first sessions together, we had established that I was basically hopeless. She told me to imagine walking down a hallway with several doors. Each door held a different memory from my childhood. I was supposed to be able to walk down the hallway in my mind. I could pick the rooms that stood out to me, and then we'd explore all the memories they potentially held. I tried to imagine the hallway, but Ruby was asking for details I couldn't visualize. She would ask about the pattern on the carpet or the room numbers. I could tell she was getting frustrated with my inability to describe what I was supposed to be seeing. Ruby, I don't actually see anything, I'm not hypnotized yet, I said. You're not supposed to be hypnotized yet. I just want you to picture it in your mind. We had been over this several times. I see nothing but blackness. I know what a hallway looks like. I could draw one for you, but I don't actually see anything. It's hard for me to tell you what the carpet looks like without just making it up. Do you want me to make it up? I asked. Denver, 
I think you might have aphantasia. Ruby went on to explain that a small percentage of people are unable to picture images in their minds. We were both equally stunned. She couldn't wrap her mind around how I was able to paint and draw without seeing anything in my mind's eye. I was frustrated that my college classmates could see their notes in their heads. They felt like they were cheating. Ruby had the ability to see my past lives for me and told me about my most recent lifetime. I found it entertaining and I was curious to hear more, but I was too skeptical about it to find it helpful. I was fascinated by the concept that our purpose in this life is to learn. We are all returning to this world, life after life, in the pursuit of discovering the meaning of each of those lives. I found comfort in getting another chance to try it again in the event that we failed to reach that goal in this life. It was a guiding philosophy that inspired me to seek answers without the stress of running out of time in death. Ruby thought I might be holding on to stress from my childhood, but she also thought I might be holding on to something from a past life. I was open-minded enough to try regression, but not because I believed in previous lives. I think Ruby just had an uncanny ability to reach the zone between wakeful consciousness and lucid dreaming. Everything she could access in that meditative state was nothing more than colorful interpretations of what her brain did while daydreaming. Still, she was able to perceive unexplainable things, and she seemed magical. Her visions of my past life said more about her than they did about me. I would always be skeptical until I could see it for myself. I wanted to analyze my visions like a weird dream, but I could never see anything, no matter how hard I tried. I briefly considered taking hallucinogens, but I was committed to maintaining my sobriety. I was now lying on Ruby's couch again, focusing on my breathing while staring into the void that is my mind's eye. She took my inability to visualize as a challenge and brought a few new tools to try for today's session. We started by thinking about the most comfortable part of my body. My knees ached, and my hands felt awkward resting by my side, but my shoulders were relaxed. Ruby told me to concentrate on that level of comfort and to let the feeling spread across my body. Suddenly I heard the long droning tone of a single metallic note. Ruby explained that she wanted me to forget about seeing with my eyes. My connection with music would be the path to hypnosis. I would instead visualize with my ears. She could produce a warm ringing sound by running a small mallet around the side of a large metal bowl. I focused my mind on the sound. Before long, I could sense the circular motion she was making. As I continued to relax, I felt my consciousness leave my head, and I was now on the other side of the room where the sound was coming from. I was also shocked to find that I could now see the bowl. Instead of the low couch I had laid on, I felt like I was standing behind Ruby, watching her generate the sound. My mind was drawn to the sound, and I admired the decorative markings covering the outside of the bowl. I felt like I was dreaming, but I was wide awake and able to talk to Ruby from my body on the other end of the room. When I looked up from the bowl, she was gone, and I was no longer in her office. I could see my younger self sitting on the floor of my childhood bedroom. I was crying, but I wasn't sure why. I didn't seem physically hurt. I had my head between my knees with my arms wrapped around my shins. I was about to call out to myself when the door suddenly opened and my mother walked in. She was young and looked exactly how I remembered her from that time. Her hair smelled of excessive hairspray and her bangs combined to make one long curl across her forehead. She walked over and sat on the floor next to my younger self. Without saying anything, 
She put one arm around my shoulders and rested her head against mine. She closed her eyes and squeezed me tight. We gently rocked from side to side together to the tempo of the singing bowl. I slowly approached, not wanting to disturb them. I sat next to my mom and placed my hand on her shoulder. I was startled by her reaction to my touch. I had assumed they couldn't see or hear me. She put her right arm around me while still holding my inner child in her left. She squeezed us both tightly as we listened to the warm spinning sound that had brought us together again. addiction what i wish i could tell my father thank you for taking the time to listen to this story this has been a brain bucket production all rights reserved copyright 2023 by denver j hamilton